Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. This passage that we just heard has a couple unique aspects. It has a peculiar Old Testament reference. It has the most commonly known verse in all of Scripture. And it has almost what sounds to be an ultimatum which uh, we never enjoy ultimatums, right? This segment of Scripture comes at the very end of a discussion that, uh, that Jesus had with a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was one of the most powerful people in the religious circle uh, of Israel during the time which Jesus was, uh, was here with us. And Nicodemus was this powerful man, but he was also very curious about Jesus, which I think is one of the most important characteristics for us, is a sense of curiosity around spirituality. And his curiosity led him to have a desire to to speak to Jesus, but because he was this powerful, well-known person, he came to Jesus at night, and he snuck over to Jesus and began to ask Jesus many questions about what he was there for. And Jesus, in this conversation, references something that for us, we would read perhaps and go, what in the world is that about? But Nicodemus, he would know. And this is what he said in verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. What Jesus is doing is, I think he's trying to speak to Nicodemus in a language in which he would he would understand, and I think he's also trying to implant within Nicodemus a thought that would one day become a memory that would be profoundly transformative. This is uh, from Numbers 21. Is this bizarre story where the people of God were led by God through the desert, and they grew tired of having to trust God. Does anyone grow tired of having to trust God? You just wish you could go on your own? If God is a nice backup, right, the safety net, but they were, grew tired of having to, to wait for God, for God's provision, for food and for water. And so they started grumbling. They started complaining about it. And so God sent venomous snakes into the camp and started biting people, and people started dying. And so the people obviously came to Moses and said, please, please pray for us that these snakes could be driven out. Please pray for us to be healed. And this is what God says to Moses in Numbers 21. The Lord said to Moses in verse 8, make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake looked on the bronze snake, and they lived. Kind of bizarre, right? Especially when you think about God's relationship to snakes to begin with. You know, like, it's just kind of weird. It's like the opposite of Indiana Jones. Like, you don't look at the ark, and here you're supposed to look at the bronze snake. It's very, very bizarre. What is interesting to me is not only this use of this bronze snake for healing, but this bronze snake was actually kept by the Israelites to be a reminder a monument. And then centuries later, the people of Israel began to worship the snake on the staff. Like it, the thing used by God replaced God, and they began worshiping this almighty snake on a staff. And it's so funny to me that, that oftentimes we as people are so guilty of taking the things 
that God uses in our life and worshiping them rather than God, God's self. And so the king had to, at that point, he had to destroy this staff and this snake. We are often taught in church world to be, uh, be very careful of the idols that exist in the world. And what this story tells us is some of the most destructive idols are actually within our religion. The things that can replace God and be our source of worship and our heart's desire. Even churches, we can, we can worship the wrong thing. We could be like, oh, church growth, we want more people or or a bigger budget, or a building. How cool would that be? Oh, just to have a building. And none of those things are wrong, but they're just not Jesus. <laughs> like they're just a really, really poor substitute for Jesus. And so for us, like we could be so uh, set on things that could replace Jesus, the, the things that maybe even God cares about, like social justice, or church growth, or being fresh and relevant and new but they just are a bad, bad replacement for who Jesus is. This reminds me of something that I think is is a warning that I have held in my life. Perhaps the greatest threat to the church today is not failure, but it's it's success in all the wrong categories. Like we we could be, and this is also for us as individuals, maybe our biggest threat as people is not that we are a failure in life, but that we are successful in everything that really doesn't matter. And later on in life, we look back and go, oh, this really didn't matter as much as what God had me for. God's not impressed by big buildings or big budgets or big rosters. I think God's looking for churches who wholeheartedly love Jesus and follow him into the world. When we remove Jesus from the focus of our worship, there's casualties for it. When there's a disconnect between Jesus and and that which we worship, there's, there's real casuals. When I first moved to Austin, I moved to Austin around 13 years ago to do college ministry at UT. Uh, I came from a and I went to Baylor and decided there's a great mission field at UT. <laughs> and uh, so I came to, came to Austin, and honestly, one of the first things I did, I was just curious to, to learn more about UT. So I grabbed a camera, and I went around campus, and I, I asked college students two different questions. And the, the first question was, what comes to mind when you think about the church? I interviewed around 20 or so college students. Hey, excuse me, do you have a second? Doing a little, a little poll here. Could I? Okay, yeah, yeah, I can do it. What comes to mind when you think about church? Any guesses of what the most common answers were? There are only like four answers that I heard 20 some odd times. Let's guess. Hypocrite. What else? Judgmental, those are the top two. Very good. What are the two other ones? Pardon me? Praying? Nope. Sorry, Mo. Nope, not boring. Throwing out Snickers makes it not boring. A touchy. Republican? Homophobic. Over and over and over and over again. And oftentimes, I, when people would answer, I just have to put down the camera and be like, hey, can we talk? <laughs> uh, guess what word never was said? Jesus. Unfortunately, the church's reputation is absent of Jesus, the very reason why we exist. And I was just so, oh, distraught by it. And then I asked the question, what, what comes to mind? This is the second question. 
What comes to mind when you think about Jesus? Any guess what those answers were? Good person? Teacher? Loving? Forgiving? <laughs> like very like actual like scriptural things. Merciful? And it was just interesting for me, just the, the separation between Jesus and Jesus' people. And it made me just wonder as I was moving here to Austin of like, I was like so, dis- I was full of despair about the disconnect, but I was also very, very challenged. Because who would love church without Jesus? Not many of us. The very reason why we're here is this experience of knowing God's love through Jesus and experiencing this community through Jesus and having this mission because of us understanding who Jesus is. And absent of Jesus, then we really are end up worshiping bronze snakes. Like, why do we exist absent of Jesus? And it's not only just bad for us, but it's also bad for this world. For us to be known without the fragrance of Jesus on us. This is why our vine, our, the vine's mission statement is what it is, which is what? Follow to follow Jesus together. Thank you. I've always been wanted to be a part of a church organization that people knew the mission statement. Just wasn't on like some, you know, plaque on the wall. Yes, we exist to follow Jesus together. That's our whole mission. It's not because we want to be cute and smug to have a really small mission statement. It's because we don't want to venture anywhere else. Like, this is why we are here. It's because we believe that Jesus is active and can change the world. And so we're going to follow Jesus together. That's, that's why we exist. And any time we venture off, We have to keep our eye out for the bronze snakes that creep into our community. It's sad, but I think one of the most radical things that we can do as as Jesus followers, followers of Jesus, the one of the most radical things we could do is return our roots. This word radical, uh, the, the Latin for this word radical is radix, which sounds like the word radish. The word radical literally means root, and I really think for us as God's people, one of the most radical things we can do is to return to our roots of the vine that gives the branches life source, that gives us the ability to exist and to flourish so that we can be fruitful for this world's sake. So for us, let's be radical together. Let's get back to the root of why we are here. But there is a deeper meaning in this illustration that Jesus was using to Nic- for Nicodemus. He said, remember, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus was using this picture that Nicodemus would have known of this serpent being lifted up on a, on a stick so that later on, perhaps, this memory, this conversation would come back to life. And when would that moment be? When was the Son of Man, which is one of Jesus' favorite descriptions of himself, talking about his humanity, the Son of Man, when was he lifted up so that people might look at him and believe that they could have eternal life? It was on the cross. So Jesus is saying, the, the reason why I'm here is that I will be lifted up so that there might be healing for those who look on me just like they used to look at the serpent, that people could gaze on me, that behold me and believe in me so that they might too have healing. They might be renewed. And this leads us to the most common verse, the most uh, popular 
verse in all of Scripture, John 3.16, that has been co-opted by WWF wrestlers and photobombed many sporting events. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. There's a reason why this verse is so well known. I think because it's all here. It's really all here. But perhaps it's gotten a little too familiar. Maybe we need to slow down a little bit and reconsider what this says. So let's begin with this. Just for God. So the story of redemption does not begin with you. For God. It doesn't begin with your failures. The story of redemption doesn't begin with sin or your successes. For God. It begins for God so loved. Whatever you think of when you think of God, if love is not the first thing, God wants to give you a different picture of God. For God so loved, he's loving. This is who God is. John would later on write in a letter, 1 John, God is love. If you want to know who God is, it has to be of love. And I love this phrase, for God so loved. Another way of translating that phrase is, In this way, God loved. I love that translation. In this way, God loved. For God, love is not an attitude. It's not an emotion. Love isn't thoughts. Love is seen. It's demonstrated. For God so loved. You you can see it. It's as tangible as a cross, as thorns, as splinters. This is the way in which God so loved us. For God so loved that he gave his one and only son. Go to the next slide if you could. For God so loved the world. It's so popular that the pastor forgot uh, the words to it. For God so loved the world. (laughs) A little humility there. Uh, Who did God love? God loved the word. This, This word translated as cosmos. God loved the world. And there's great theological hair splitting on what does it mean that God so loved the world. And I just think there's a mystery to this. That God's love was so expansive. That it's not just whoever was in the acceptable category. It's not who God was expected to love. Jesus' ministry often went to the least likely people in the darkest places. And his love was given there. The vast love of God would have been a shock to Nicodemus. For God did not so love God's chosen people of Israel, the favored ones. But God is saying, yes, God, God so loved you, but God loved the world. The good news is for all. It's not restricted by ethnic lines. It's not restricted by gender, by economic lines. It's not restricted by nation states. God so loved the world. A love so grand that it could not hold Jesus back. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Since God is love, his love is sacrificial, his love is generous, it's expansive. And the clearest way that we can see the love of God is to watch Jesus. Especially by the way in which he chose to love us to the end. And the purpose of this love was this. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Eternal life is one of John's favorite phrases in this gospel. It's used 17 times. And I think he loves this for a reason. It's a, it's a beautiful, mysterious idea of eternal, love, eternal life. 
but it's unfamiliar to us. What do you think of when you think of eternal life? Is it life after death? Is it life in heaven? That is true, eternal life is that, but it's not only the duration of life, but it's also the quality of life here and now. Eternal life is describing the quality of life that you can have right here, right now. That is eternal life. But this, this well-known verse also gives us a challenging idea that those who do not believe in Jesus, they perish. And I think that's a hard idea for many of us. What does it mean to perish? I think the idea of perishing oftentimes is informed by some cartoonish idea of hell with stalagmites and stalactites in a burning sensation or something like that. I think John's using this word perish to unpack its, its beauty and its deeper meaning. What does it mean to perish? It's the opposite of having the quality of good eternal life here and now. Uh, when you gather uh, food, uh, food at a food, ca- uh, food can drive, what, do you, what kind of food do you want? Non-perishable items. Why? Because when things perish, they decay, they break down, they lose its meaning, they lose its value, its potential. And I wonder if what Jesus is saying here is, if you want to know how to experience the true life, you have to learn to believe in me. And for those who don't believe in me, you're going to lose your potential of what life could be. It breaks down without me. It's not how you were intended to live. There's capacity and potential that's being lost when people experience a life separated from belief and knowing who I am. I believe that that's Jesus' claim, is a life without God loses potential, loses goodness, its beauty. And Jesus came to give life abundantly, a life of ceaseless goodness and purpose and intimacy. Verse 17, it goes on. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This passage for me is challenging because it's both radically inclusive and it's also radically exclusive. It's radically, I think most people have a problem with Christianity because it feels exclusive, you know? But what, what we find in this passage, what we find in Jesus' life is it's, also radically inclusive. Jesus came to blast through every barrier that humanity made so that he could be the savior of all. And religion is really good at drawing circles around certain people and then pushing other people outside those circles. And what Jesus did, you could look at the gospels and what Jesus did is he started drawing bigger circles. He started wiping away the circles that people drew about who was in and who was out. And that Jesus started drawing wider circles and drawing circles around the people who were not included. His goal was to include those people who were, who were shunned, who were told that they were cast out, they were not allowed in. If you read the Gospels, you'll see this, that Jesus, he drew a circle around a man who was taught that he was cursed from his birth because of his deformity. He drew a circle around the ethnically despised by the destitute, by the communal misfit who was living in graves outside the community. He drew circles around prostitutes and cowards and sellouts 
He drew circles around sinners and people who were too far gone. Those two were included in God's grand plan to draw his circle of love around people. Jesus' mission was not condemnation. It was salvation. But the cross of Christ also is exclusive. We can't be faithful to this text and make it not that case. And if there's anything that's a social cuss word, it's the word exclusive, right? It's not a popular notion. And the only way that this would be a loving thing to say is if it were true. And if Jesus truly was the only way to experience eternal life, then I think we have to be willing to declare this. We have to be willing to believe in this and to share this. This passage shares that condemnation was not and is not Jesus' mission. Jesus knew that a life without him would lose meaning and significance and goodness. And the good news of God is that there is a way out. That the gift of God is the gift of eternal life, which is accepted by believing and seeing this extravagant gift of God in Jesus. And if you've never believed in that, I wonder if Jesus has his finger in the dirt around you. I wonder if he wants to draw a circle around you, around your home, around your friend group, around your family, to include you too into God's work of eternal life. And today you can believe in that. So I want to leave you guys with a couple of challenges from this, from this passage. The first one I see in this passage is don't dare condemn. If Jesus did not come to condemn the world, we better not either. If anyone had the right to condemn the world, wouldn't it be God? Wouldn't it be Jesus? And if there's something that Christians are known for is being condemning, my God, we need to repent. We need to turn from that. We need to confess that. So Jesus blew past every man-made barrier to draw in those people who were outside. And so I feel like we need to partner with him and never writing off someone from the grips of God's love. Never writing off someone of being too far gone. It's not the spirit of Jesus. So we do not condemn. Secondly, what do we do if we do not condemn? We let God's love send you. If you, if you believe Jesus, if you follow him, you go, oh, I'm so grateful that God has saved me through Jesus. And I'm going to follow you, Jesus. I just want to tell you guys something right now. If God so loved the world that he sent his son, what this means is for God so loved the world that he sends you. He sends you to be a demonstration and a conduit of God's love in this world so that in word and deed we pour ourselves out to this world for which God loves. Someone in my Vine group, we were talking about this very thing this past week, and she made the comment for us to, to, to be people of love means we have to be we have to live questionable lives. I loved how she said that, to live questionable lives. What she meant by that is to live in such a way that people go, why? Why do you care about my issues when they don't benefit you at all? Why, do you, why, are, you, why are you compassionate? Why, why, why do you pour yourself out? Why, I don't understand why you're doing it. Jesus had a questionable life. He lived a questionable life. How come, you're, how come Jesus eats with sinners and tax collectors? How come he doesn't follow our rules? 
So if we're going to be following Jesus, we have to live with such dramatic love that people ask why, so that when people ask why, we get to do the last thing that we find in this passage. We get to lift up Jesus. In a thousand loving ways, we live this life so that we get to lift up the Son of Man, that people could see him and find healing. So in our life, we live our life of love, and we live it prepared to talk about the good gift that Jesus is for the whole world, for the whole world. And when we ask why we have hope, we lift up Jesus. When, we ask, when we're asked why we have joy, we lift up Jesus. When we ask why we're concerned with other people's issues, we lift up Jesus. And so that people might be able to see the connection between Jesus' followers and who Jesus is. So friends, this good gift sends you out. Be God's people of love in this world. Follow him and do with everything you can to lift up the Son of Man that people might put their eyes on him, believe, and find healing.